0: Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V dot making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida, and by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. Previously on Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. Good evening, my fellow Americans. Three days from now,
1: I shall lay down the responsibilities of office as the authority of the presidency is vested in my successor. This evening, I come to you to share a few final thoughts. We face a hostile ideology, global in scope, atheistic in character, ruthless in purpose, and insidious in method. Added to this, three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. Now, this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists. As one who knows that another war could utterly destroy this civilization which has been so slowly and painfully built over thousands of years, I wish I could say tonight that a lasting peace is in sight. You, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, do solemnly swear... I, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, do solemnly swear... ...that you will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of your ability... And will, to the best of my ability... ...preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States.
2: Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. So help me
0: God. You're listening to episode 151 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the Cold War mystery known as Operation Northwoods. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. In 1962, the U.S. military's Joint Chiefs of Staff presented President John F. Kennedy with a daring covert plan. If approved, Operation Northwoods had the potential to rid the United States of one of the most serious threats to its security. It could stop a devastating surprise Soviet invasion and potentially head off a nuclear war. But there were risks, as there always are, and the plan could go sideways. It also involved a series of secret actions that would shock the American people if they knew about them. And for years, the plan was highly classified. So what was Operation Northwoods, and what covert actions did it involve, and what was President Kennedy's response? Well, that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World. Jimmy, what were the clips that we heard at the beginning of the show?
2: The first was from President Eisenhower's farewell address to the nation. He gave it by television and radio on January 17th, 1961, just three days before President Kennedy was inaugurated. It's famous for the fact that he warned the nation against possible abuse of influence by the growing military industrial complex, a phrase that he introduced to the nation. This was a remarkable warning in that President Eisenhower had been one of the highest-ranking military officials. He was a five-star general, he was chief of staff of the U.S. Army, and he was the supreme allied commander in Europe during World War II. So it was really striking to hear such a high-ranking military man giving a warning about not letting the military-industrial complex have too much influence on our nation's policy. The second clip, obviously, was from the inauguration of John F. Kennedy three days later. And in this episode, we'll be looking at an instance of how Kennedy responded to Eisenhower's warning.
0: All right, so that brings us to our topic then. Where does the story of Operation Northwoods begin? We need to go back well before the
2: 1960s and talk about the history of the nation of Cuba.
0: Does that mean that Operation Northwoods was part of the infamous Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba during the Kennedy years? No, the Bay of Pigs was a different operation, and we'll be discussing it in a future
2: episode. For the moment, we need to talk about Cuba and its history in more general terms. Cuba is an island nation in the Caribbean, located where the Caribbean Sea, the Gulf of Mexico, and the Atlantic Ocean meet. It's also just 90 miles from Key West off the southern tip of Florida, so the history of our two nations are bound together. Cuba has been inhabited by people of Native American origin since prehistoric times. It was visited by the Portuguese explorer Christopher Columbus with his three ships, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, on October 27, 1492. In 1511, a Spanish colony was started there, and the island came under Spanish control. But in the 1800s, Spain's New World colonies started to rebel and seek their independence, and Cuba was no exception. In a 30-year period, between 1868 and 1898, Cuba and Spain fought three wars. Spain was able to put down the first two rebellions, but the third escalated when the United States got involved, becoming the Spanish-American War. The Spanish-American War lasted for just under four months in 1898. Also, that was the war where Smedley Butler began his military career. We talked about General Smedley Butler back in episode 146 on the 1934 fascist coup in the United States. The Spanish-American War also gave a boost to the career of future President Teddy Roosevelt, who fought in Cuba with his regiment known as the Rough Riders. Afterwards, he became governor of New York and later president.
0: So how did the U.S. get involved in the
2: Spanish-American War? It was kind of a slow build. The Cuban War of Independence began in 1895 and lasted for three years. Newspaper tycoon William Randolph Hearst, the publisher of the New York Journal, hired the famous artist Frederick Remington to go to Cuba and do illustrations depicting the war. But when Remington got there, everything seemed really peaceful and he didn't have anything to do illustrations of. According to some accounts, he then wrote
0: Hearst saying, Everything is quiet. There is no trouble. There will be no war. I wish to return. Allegedly, Hearst then wrote back, saying, Please remain. You
2: furnish the pictures, and I'll furnish the war. Hearst denied that this ever happened, and it's often regarded as just an apocryphal story, but that didn't stop it from showing up in the classic 1941 movie Citizen Kane. As you may know, the character Charles Foster Kane is loosely based on William Randolph Hearst. So in Citizen Kane, we have this scene where the newspaper publisher Kane receives a cable from one of his men in Cuba. Read the cable.
1: Girls delightful in Cuba, stop could send you prose poems about scenery, but don't feel right spending your money. Stop. There is no war in Cuba. Signed Wheeler. Any answer? Yes, dear Wheeler, you provide the prose poems, I'll provide the war. That's fine, Mr. Kane. <laughs> yes, I rather like myself. George, it right away. I right came away. to see you yes, about this campaign of yours.
2: Eventually, things did heat up. In January 1898, the U.S. Navy sent a ship named the USS Maine To Havana Harbor to look out for American interests. As we mentioned, the history of our two countries are intertwined, so we already had business and other interests in Cuba. In fact, between the 1840s and the 1890s, five American presidents had offered to buy the island from Spain, though Spain never accepted the offer. The ship, the USS Maine, was under the command of Captain Charles Sigsby. While the Maine was in the harbor at Havana, something happened. Terrible happened late at night on February fifteenth. The Secretary of the Navy in Washington, D.C., received
0: an urgent telegram from Captain Sigsby. It said: Maine blown up in Havana Harbor at nine forty tonight and destroyed. Many wounded and doubtless more killed or drowned. Wounded and others are on board Spanish men of war Alfonso the Twelfth and Ward Line steamer S.S. City of Washington." Send lighthouse tenders from Key West for crew and the few pieces of equipment above water. No one has clothing other than that upon him. Public opinion should be suspended until further report. All officers believed to be saved. Many Spanish officers, including Representative of Spanish Governor General Blanco, now with me to express sympathy. So at 9.40 p.m., there had been
2: a terrible explosion aboard the main. It destroyed the front third of the ship, and the remainder sank within minutes. Of the 355 men on board the ship, 266, or 75% of the crew, died. But almost all of the officers survived because their quarters were on the other end of the ship. And no one was sure why the explosion happened. When they woke up President William McKinley in Washington to tell him about the disaster, it was initially described as an accident. But no one was sure about that because no investigation had been done. The ship could have exploded for any number of reasons. It could have been an accidental fire that set off its forward magazines. It could have been struck by a mine floating in the harbor. It could have been deliberately torpedoed and nobody knew. And if it was something like a mine or a torpedo, then Spain could have been responsible. How did they end up sorting it all out, all these different options? Two independent investigations were called, one by Spain and one by the U.S. Navy. The Spanish investigation concluded that it was an accidental fire. However, after reviewing and ruling out the things that could have caused a fire, the Navy investigation concluded,
0: There were two explosions of a distinctly different character with a very short but distinct interval between them, and the forward part of the ship was lifted to a marked degree at the time of the first explosion. The first explosion was more in the nature of a report, like that of a gun, while the second explosion was more open, prolonged, and of a greater volume. The second explosion was, in the opinion of the court, caused by the partial explosion of two or more of the forward magazines of the main. The Navy thus concluded, based on eyewitness testimony,
2: that two explosions had been heard, and the second was the detonation of two or more of the forward magazines. The question was, what caused the initial explosion that set them off. Based on the testimony of divers that had examined the wreck, the court continued,
0: At structural frame 17, the outer shell of the ship has been forced up so as to be now about four feet above the surface of the water. The outside bottom plating is bent into a reversed V shape. At structural frame 18, the vertical keel is broken into and the flat keel is bent at an angle similar to the angle formed by the outside bottom plating. In the opinion of the court, this effect could have been produced only by the explosion of a mine situated under the bottom of the ship at about frame 18 and somewhat on the port side of the ship. The court finds that the loss of the main on the occasion named was not in any respect due to fault or negligence on the part of any of the officers or members of the crew of said vessel. In the opinion of the court, the main was destroyed by the explosion of a submarine mine, which caused the partial explosion of two or more of her Ford magazines.
2: So the Spanish investigation concluded that it was an accidental fire that set off the magazines, and the Navy investigation concluded that it was an underwater mine that set them off. You can guess which opinion prevailed in the American press.
0: Yeah, and that's where this takes an interesting turn because the press played a big role in what happened next. What can you tell us about that?
2: At the time, there were a lot of sleazy practices in American newspapers. They were practicing what would later be called yellow journalism. Basically, much like the media of today, they were slanting and sensationalizing stories and even just making stuff up to sell newspapers. It was the 1890s equivalent of modern internet clickbait, and the competition was fierce. It was particularly fierce in New York, where William Randolph Hearst, publisher of the New York Journal, was locked in competition with his hated rival, Joseph Pulitzer, publisher of the New York World. And yeah, Joseph Pulitzer is the guy that the famous Pulitzer Prize is named after. So how did these two newspaper tycoons handle this story? Shortly after the sinking of the main, William Randolph Hearst ran a story with the headline, The warship main was split in two by an enemy's secret infernal machine. The story said that the Spanish had planted a torpedo under the main and then set it off remotely from shore using wires because they didn't have you know, like radio control up and running in the same way we do now then. Soon, Hearst published another article with supposed diagrams and blueprints of secret Spanish torpedoes. And for a week after the disaster, his journal devoted an average of eight and a half pages of coverage per day to what happened with those big broadsheet pages. Hearst even offered $50,000, or $1.6 in today's money after all the government caused inflation, as a reward leading to, quote, the conviction of the criminals who sent 258 American sailors to their deaths, close quote.
0: So the, the New York World's publisher, Joseph Pulitzer, reportedly didn't believe that Spain was responsible. But how did that affect how his paper covered the event? Not to a great degree.
2: Pulitzer apparently privately thought that nobody outside a lunatic asylum believed Spain deliberately blew up the main. However, his paper still accused Spain of treachery, willingness, or laxness for allowing Havana Harbor to be unsafe. The paper repeatedly insisted that the ship had been bombed or mined, and it said that Spain must give Cuba its independence in order to atone for the destruction of the main. Between the efforts of these two newspaper publishers, as well as many others, the American public was whipped up into a war frenzy. The slogan of the day was, Remember the Maine, to hell with Spain! And so, in April 1898, two months after the Maine sank, Congress declared war and the Spanish-American War began. It lasted just under four months and finished in August.
0: With a war that short, did it
2: achieve much? Actually, it had surprisingly wide-ranging consequences. There was a theater of war, both in the Caribbean, where Cuba is, and also in the Pacific Ocean. There was a rebellion against Spanish rule happening in the Philippine Islands, and we got involved in both theaters. By the time the war was over in August, Spain had lost control of four nations, Cuba, the Philippines, Puerto Rico, and Guam. It was a big blow to Spain, and it prompted a lot of rethinking back home. So what happened with Cuba after the war? Cuba became a U.S. protectorate, and we gave them full independence in 1902. The Republic of Cuba then lasted from 1902 to 1959, and relations with the Republic of Cuba were mostly good. Now, one of the places that the Navy fought at during the war was a location on the southeastern tip of Cuba known as Guantanamo Bay. We needed a place to put our ships during the hurricane season of 1898, so with the cooperation of the Cuban rebels, we put our ships there to, you know, weather out the hurricane season, and we constructed a settlement that is now Guantanamo Bay Naval Base. After the war, we leased it from Cuba for an indefinite period of time, and that's why we still have a military presence on the island of Cuba. In recent years, Guantanamo Bay has been controversially used as a detention camp for enemy combatants captured in the war on terror that started after the 9-11 attacks in 2001. And we've sent payments, because this is a lease arrangement, we've sent payments to the Cuban government annually, every year, for renting Guantanamo Naval Base. But For some strange reason, they haven't cashed any of the checks we've been sending in recent years, not
0: since 1959. I have a feeling that reason isn't so strange. So what happened in 1959? Since 1902, the Republic of Cuba had a mix
2: of both successes and failures. By the 1950s, it had become one of the most prosperous Latin American nations, But there was also internal social and political strife with a sharp division between rich and poor, though there was also a middle class. In 1952, with U.S. backing, former Cuban president and military officer Fulgencio Batista seized power in a coup. This was actually his second successful coup. After the first, he had gone on to be elected president, but he then stood down and honored the constitutional requirement that he not run again in 1944. But almost a decade later, things were going badly in the country, and he staged a new coup and succeeded. But Batista had opponents who started working against him. Among them was a group of young revolutionaries that included figures like Fidel Castro and Che Guevara. They began what is now known as the Cuban Revolution, and in December of 1958, they forced Batista out of power and into exile. The next year, 1959, they formed a new government and cashed the final Guantanamo Bay check that we'd sent them up to that point.
0: Cuba is now famous as a communist country that played a key role in the Cold War. So was there a great alarm in America when Castro took power? No, because Castro
2: wasn't a committed communist yet. In fact, many in the U.S. welcomed the news when Castro took over as they thought it was a democratizing move in the region. But U.S.-Cuban relations quickly soured. Castro began executing large numbers of people, though the precise numbers are disputed and probably unknowable. The victims included politicians, policemen, and those who had cooperated with the former Batista regime. Needless to say, a lot of people started fleeing Cuba, and many of them found a new home in the United States. Castro also legalized the Communist Party. He signed a commercial agreement with the Soviet Union and he expropriated American assets in Cuba, including thousands of acres of farmland used by U.S. landholders. And how did the American government react to that? It started imposing trade sanctions and eventually banned all commerce with Cuba. It also froze Cuban assets in the U.S. The CIA began supporting Castro's enemies, of whom there were many. He and the president of the Dominican Republic, Rafael Trujillo, were waging campaigns to try to overthrow each other. And there was a widespread rebellion against Castro in the Escambray Mountains in Cuba. And that went on for six years, not ending until 1965. In 1960, the last year of his presidency, Dwight Eisenhower authorized the CIA to start training Cuban exiles to overthrow Castro. This led, in April of 1961, just three months after JFK's inauguration, to the disastrous Bay of Pigs invasion. And the Bay of Pigs has its own story, which we will be talking about in the future. For now, just note that Cuba was falling ever further into the orbit of the Soviet Empire, and it was scaring the pants off people in Washington, D.C.
0: Why were they so worried? Cuba is a small nation that couldn't possibly pose a serious military threat to the United States not on its own, but it was
2: a small nation just 90 miles from Florida and at the entrance to the Gulf of Mexico. If it became a Soviet satellite nation, it could become a military base for the Soviets, and they did pose a major military threat to the U.S. With Cuba under their control, they could blockade the Gulf of Mexico and severely hurt the U.S. economically by stopping the trade that goes into and out of the Gulf. Or from Cuba, the Soviets could launch a surprise invasion of Florida or the East Coast. Or by going through the Gulf, they could attack any of the Gulf states, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas. And they could seize major ports like Mobile, Alabama, and start unloading their troops there. They could install missiles in Cuba that could reach large portions of the continental U.S., They could even decide to install nuclear missiles, as they were doing in October 1962, leading to the Cuban Missile Crisis, which we'll also discuss in the future. And with Cuba as a foothold, they could start exporting communism to other countries in the Western Hemisphere, making the Cold War much worse. So Washington was extremely concerned about Castro and the direction Cuba was heading in. For many government and military officials, it was a terrifying situation.
0: And that leads us back to the main subject of our episode today, Operation Northwoods, which was a plan developed to deal with the emerging situation in Cuba. So how did that start? President
2: Eisenhower had signed off on a CIA program titled A Program of Covert Action Against the Castro Regime. He signed that in 1960. When Kennedy came to power in 1961, he inherited this effort and others associated with it. The overall program was sometimes called the Cuba Project, but in November 1961, it reportedly became known as Operation Mongoose, and it involved a bunch of agencies. These included the CIA, the FBI, and the Department of Defense, which oversees the Army, Navy, Marines, and Air Force. It also involved the State Department. The Immigration and Naturalization Service, and others. Operation Mongoose did lots of stuff, and we'll be talking about it in the future, but most of their efforts weren't paying off in 1961. The failure of the Bay of Pigs invasion, which relied on Cuban exiles to take back their own country, was just one example. So some of the leaders thought, well, look, we need to deal with the Cuba problem before the nation is firmly planted in the Soviet sphere. We only have a limited amount of time to do that because once the Soviets are in charge, the situation will be much harder to deal with. And since our other efforts aren't paying off, maybe we should just do the job ourselves.
0: Do they mean an American invasion of Cuba?
2: Exactly. Our allies had small numbers and they were poorly equipped, poorly funded, and poorly trained, and they weren't meeting with success. So People thought, why not go in ourselves with our large, well-trained, well-equipped, well-funded military and take care of the problem? We clearly had the force needed to get rid of Castro and reinstall a democracy in the country, this is exactly what a lot of anti-Castro Cubans wanted us to do. It also fit with our national interests also, and it would help other people in the Western Hemisphere to avoid communist subversion and uprisings in their countries. So it seemed to people in the Defense Department like it was a very reasonable thing to do, and thus the Joint Chiefs of Staff drafted the plan for Operation Northwoods.
0: People may have heard of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, but not have a clear idea of who they are. Who are they and what position do they have in the U.S. military? The Joint
2: Chiefs of Staff are the senior military leadership within the Defense Department. The Joint Chiefs at the time included a chairman who would rotate among the different branches of service, a vice chairman who also rotated among them, the chief of staff of the army, the chief of staff of the air force, the chief of naval operations, so the head of the navy. And in 1962, it also frequently included the commandant of the Marine Corps. So it's basically the heads of each of the branches of military service, plus a chairman and a vice chairman. In other words, it's the military top dogs. And they advise the president and the secretary of defense on military matters.
0: How did they propose to invade Cuba? As part of the Cold War, the Soviet Union was publicly depicting the U.S. as a rich, aggressive, imperialist power that was out for world domination, while they, the Soviets, were on the side of the little guy. So for the U.S. to invade one of its small neighbors would seem to play right into that narrative and would harm the U.S. reputation and world opinion and potentially push other countries into the Soviet orbit. Right. If we just up and invaded Cuba, it would cause. All
2: kinds of outrage and cause other countries to start relying on the Soviet Union for protection against the clearly and unjustifiably aggressive American threat. So we needed to not look like we were being unjustifiably aggressive. We needed a justification for invading Cuba, a justification that would give cover for our actions in the court of world opinion. But since we didn't have such a justification, the Joint Chiefs proposed ways we could manufacture one. And that's what Operation Northwoods was, a series of possible justifications that we could use to set up an invasion of Cuba. The Chief of Operations of the Cuba Project asked for a list of ideas, and they came up with it quickly. Just a week after the request, on March 13, 1962, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Lyman Lemnitzer of the U.S. Army, sent Secretary of
0: Defense Robert McNamara a memorandum. It read, 1. The Joint Chiefs of Staff have considered the attached Memorandum for the Chief of Operations, Cuba Project, which responds to a request of that office for brief but precise descriptions of pretexts which would provide justification for U.S. military intervention in Cuba. 2. The Joint Chiefs of Staff recommend that the proposed memorandum be forwarded as a preliminary submission suitable for planning purposes. It is assumed that there will be similar submissions from other agencies and that these inputs will be used as a basis for developing a time-phased plan. Individual projects can then be considered on a case-by-case basis. 3. Further, it is assumed that a single agency will be given the primary responsibility For developing military and paramilitary aspects of the basic plan. It is recommended that this responsibility for both overt and covert military operations be assigned to the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So they realized that other agencies
2: would be involved as planning progressed, but they recommended that they be given primary responsibility for planning overt and covert military actions rather than the CIA or people like that who they kind of had a rivalry with. Included in the packet that General Limnitzer sent Secretary McNamara was a memo outlining the overall plan. It was titled, Justification for U.S. Military
0: Intervention in Cuba, Top Secret. It said, in part, The suggested courses of action appended to Enclosure A are based on the premise that U.S. military intervention will result from a period of heightened U.S.-Cuban tensions which placed the United States in the position of suffering justifiable grievances. World opinion and the United Nations Forum should be favorably affected by developing the international image of the Cuban government as rash and irresponsible, and as an alarming and unpredictable threat to the peace of the Western Hemisphere. While the foregoing premise can be utilized at the present time, it will continue to hold good only as long as there can be reasonable certainty that U.S. military intervention in Cuba would not directly involve the soviet union there is as yet no bilateral mutual support agreement binding the ussr to the defense of cuba cuba has not yet become a member of the warsaw pact nor have the soviets established soviet bases in cuba in the pattern of us bases in western europe therefore since time appears to be an important factor in resolution of the cuba problem all projects are suggested within the time frame of the next few months So here are
2: some ideas that we can use to justify our invasion of Cuba, and we recommend that we get all this planned and executed in the next few months before Cuba has formal ties with the Soviets.
0: So the memo mentioned something called Enclosure A, which had the individual pretexts. What did Enclosure A suggest? It suggested a bunch of things, but here's an overall summary of what the plan was. This plan, incorporating projects selected from the attached suggestions, Or from other sources, should be developed to focus all efforts on a specific ultimate objective which would provide adequate justification for U.S. military intervention. Such a plan would enable a logical buildup of incidents to be combined with other seemingly unrelated events to camouflage the ultimate objective and create the necessary impression of Cuban rashness and irresponsibility on a large scale directed at other countries as well as the United States.
2: So the plant didn't recommend just one thing. It recommended that, from among the things it suggested, a bunch of them be carried out to create an overall impression of Cuba acting rashly and irresponsibly, both towards the United States and towards other countries.
0: And who would be carrying out
2: these actions? For the most part, we would. That is, covert agents of the U.S. military and intelligence services would do a bunch of provocative things, but make it look like the Cubans were responsible instead. In other words, these would be what are known as false flag operations.
0: Where do we get the name false flag from? It's a metaphor that originated in the
2: 1500s. It's based on the fact that sailing ships would fly flags, indicating their nationalities, among other things. So if you were a pirate and you wanted to raid a merchant ship, you wouldn't come sailing up to it flying a skull and crossbones flag from your mast. That would be spotted a long way off and the merchant ship might evade you or at least get ready to deal with your assault. Thus, it would be in your interests to put up a different flag. For example, if you were approaching a British merchant ship, you might put up a British flag. Or if you were approaching a Spanish ship, you might put up a Spanish flag. And you might even signal them that you're in trouble and need their help or that you have an important message from home That way, they'd think you were a friendly and would let you get real close to them before you spring your trap and reveal you're actually a pirate ship. Now, we apparently don't have records of pirate ships actually flying false flags, at least that's what I've read, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if they did. In any event, in the 1500s, this became a metaphor for doing something deceptively. In time, it came to refer to actions a person or group does itself to further its own interests, but that it stages to look like someone else is responsible for them. In this case, the plan was to do a bunch of crazy aggressive stuff and blame it on the Cubans to make them look crazy and aggressive, justifying our invasion. Crazy and aggressive stuff like what? Well, the first suggestion in the document is actually to act a little crazy and aggressive ourselves in order to get a rise out of them by making it look like a U.S. invasion is imminent.
0: Since it would seem desirable to use legitimate provocation as the basis for U.S. military intervention in Cuba, a cover and deception plan could be executed as an initial effort to provoke Cuban reactions. Harassment plus deceptive actions to convince the Cubans of imminent invasion would be emphasized, our military posture throughout execution of the plan will allow a rapid change from exercise to intervention if Cuban response justifies. So we harass
2: them and do things that suggest we're about to invade them, and if they take the bait and strike back, it will look like they're the aggressor. In other words, we trick them into firing first. Also, we have Guantanamo Bay Naval Base sitting right there and it was a sore spot with the new Cuban government, which regarded it as an illegal presence on their island, which is why they weren't cashing our rent checks anymore, it could be a logical thing for Cubans to attack Guantanamo Bay if they were really as crazy and aggressive as we wanted them to appear to be.
0: So, the document suggested, a series of well-coordinated incidents will be planned to take place in and around Guantanamo to give genuine appearance of being done by hostile Cuban forces. A. Incidents to establish a credible attack, not in chronological order. 1. Start rumors, many. Use clandestine radio.
2: That means use covert radio broadcasts to create the impression that Cubans are about to attack or are attacking Guantanamo Bay.
0: 2. Land friendly Cubans in uniform over the fence to stage attack on base. That means bring friendly Cuban exiles back to
2: Guantanamo Bay, dress them up in Cuban military uniforms, give them guns, and have them stage
0: a fake raid on our naval base. Three, capture Cuban friendly saboteurs inside the base. That
2: means without putting them in uniform, pretend to catch some friendly Cuban exiles inside the base and claim that they were saboteurs sent by Castro. Four, start riots near the base main gate. Friendly Cubans Bring some friendly Cuban exiles back and have them start
0: a fake riot outside the base. 5. Blow up ammunition inside the base. Start fires. 6. Burn aircraft on airbase. Sabotage. 7. Lob mortar shells from outside of base into base. Some damage to installations. 8. Capture assault teams approaching from the sea or vicinity of Guantanamo City. 9. Capture militia group which storms the base. 10. Sabotage ship in harbor, large fires, naphthalene. Naphthalene, by the way, is a flammable substance
2: used in mothballs. It's what gives them their distinctive smell. The idea would be to sabotage a ship in Guantanamo Bay Harbor and use naphthalene to make the fire bigger. Notice it doesn't say anything about whether the ship would or wouldn't have people on it.
0: 11. Sink ship near harbor entrance. Conduct funerals for mock victims, maybe in lieu of 10. So maybe we'll instead just
2: sink a ship instead of burning one, and then we can conduct funerals for the pretend victims. And these kinds of actions would give us justification for a limited response.
0: B. United States would respond by executing offensive operations to secure water and power supplies, destroying artillery and mortar emplacements which threaten the base. C commence large-scale United States military operations. After an initial limited response in the area of
2: Guantanamo Bay, we'd then be able to conduct broader operations. And we're just getting started. Remember the sinking of the USS Maine that got us into the Spanish-American
0: War? The document goes on to say, A Remember the Maine incident could be arranged in several forms. A. We could blow up a U.S. ship in Guantanamo Bay and blame Cuba. B, we could blow up a drone unmanned vessel anywhere in Cuban waters. We could arrange to cause such an incident in the vicinity of Havana or Santiago as a spectacular result of Cuban attack from the air or sea or both. The presence of Cuban planes or ships merely investigating the intent of the vessel could be fairly compelling evidence that the ship was taken under attack. The nearness to Havana or Santiago would add credibility, especially to those people that might have heard the blast or have seen the fire. The U.S. could follow up with an air-sea rescue operation covered by U.S. fighters to evacuate remaining members of the non-existent crew. Casualty lists in U.S. newspapers would cause a helpful wave of national indignation. So blow up a ship, possibly a
2: drone ship, somewhere in Cuban waters— wait for Cuban planes or ships to show up to investigate and then cite their presence as evidence that the ship was under attack, and stage a fake rescue operation for the non-existent survivors, but lie to the American people by putting fake casualty lists in U.S. newspapers to create a helpful wave of national indignation. And don't forget that we need to attack other nations in the area, too, to show that Castro's Cuba isn't just a threat to us, but to everybody. Now, in military jargon, a filibuster is an ostensibly unauthorized military expedition where you go into someone else's territory and start or support a revolution.
0: So, a Cuban-based Castro-supported filibuster Could be simulated against a neighboring Caribbean nation in the vein of the 14th of June invasion of the Dominican Republic. We know that Castro is backing subversive efforts clandestinely against Haiti, Dominican Republic, Guatemala, and Nicaragua at present, and possibly others. These efforts can be magnified and additional ones contrived for exposure. For example, advantage can be taken of the sensitivity of the Dominican Air Force to intrusions within their national airspace. Cuban B-26 or C-46 type aircraft could make cane-burning raids at night. Soviet block incendiaries could be found. This could be coupled with Cuban messages to the communist underground in the Dominican Republic and Cuban shipments of arms which would be found or intercepted on the beach.
2: So we could attack the Dominican Republic using Cuban-style aircraft to burn their sugar cane fields at night. Use the kind of incendiaries that the Soviets have. Broadcast fake messages from Cubans to the communist underground in the Dominican Republic, and arrange to have fake Cuban arm shipments found or intercepted on the beach. Also, we can exploit the fact that the Soviets are using a fancy, hard-to-deal-with aircraft known as the MiG fighter.
0: So. Use of MiG-type aircraft by U.S. pilots could provide additional provocation. Harassment of civil air, attacks on surface shipping, and destruction of U.S. military drone aircraft by MiG-type planes would be useful as complementary actions. An F-86 properly painted would convince air passengers that they saw a Cuban MiG, especially if the pilot of the transport were to announce such fact. This plan would rely on using our own
2: drone military aircraft. And that didn't mean then what it does today. Back then, a drone aircraft was any aircraft that didn't have people on board it and was piloted by remote control. So think normal looking military planes with remote control, planes that look like they have human passengers on them, but don't envision the modern drones that are specially built to have no pilots or passengers. We could then use faked-up Cuban MiG fighters to attack these drone planes and kill all the people apparently on board them, who really aren't there. We also can use them to harass civil airplanes, and we can attack shipping vessels down on the ocean, apparently ships with actual people on board since drone ships are not mentioned. And we could have the pretended Cuban pilot of the MiG get on the radio and announce that he represents the Cuban Air Force. But there was a potential problem that we
0: needed to overcome. The primary drawback to this suggestion appears to be the security risk inherent in obtaining or modifying an aircraft. However, reasonable copies of the MiG could be produced from U.S. resources in about three months. Eventually, during the Vietnam War, we did get our hands on a MiG fighter
2: after an Israeli plan known as Operation Diamond, and we reverse-engineered the MiG out at Area 51, which was good because the MiG was a very formidable threat to our own fighters at the time. But even back in 1962, we thought we could make reasonable, visually similar facsimiles within three months. Also, Back in the 1950s, a series of aircraft hijackings had begun, and the hijackers would demand that they be taken to Cuba to avoid prosecution by U.S. authorities. This was kind of a trope at the time. If you ever see sketches of old-style airplane hijackings, the hijackers immediately say, take me to Cuba. And the same thing could apply to
0: hijacking surface ships. As a result, Hijacking attempts against civil air and surface craft should appear to continue as harassing measures condoned by the government of Cuba. Concurrently, genuine defections of Cuban military and civil air and surface craft should be encouraged. Thus, we should simultaneously
2: stage fake hijackings of airplanes and surface ships and make it look like Cuba is condoning them. At the same time, we should encourage Cuban planes and surface ships to defect to us so they can testify about how bad things are in Cuba.
0: It is possible to create an incident which will demonstrate convincingly that a Cuban aircraft has attacked and shot down a chartered civilian airliner en route from the United States to Jamaica, Guatemala, Panama, or Venezuela. The destination would be chosen only to cause the flight plan route to cross Cuba. The passengers could be a group of college students off on a holiday or any grouping of persons with a common interest to support chartering a non-scheduled flight. A. An aircraft at Eglin Air Force Base would be painted and numbered as an exact duplicate for a civil registered aircraft belonging to a CIA proprietary organization in the Miami area. At a designated time. The duplicate would be substituted for the actual civil aircraft and would be loaded with the selected passengers, all boarded under carefully prepared aliases. The actual registered aircraft would be converted to a drone. B. Takeoff times of the drone aircraft and the actual aircraft will be scheduled to allow a rendezvous south of Florida. From the rendezvous point, the passenger carrying aircraft will descend to minimum altitude and go directly into an auxiliary field at Eglin Air Force Base where arrangements will have been made to evacuate the passengers and return the aircraft to its original status. The drone aircraft, meanwhile, will continue to fly the filed flight plan. When over Cuba, the drone will begin transmitting on the international distress frequency a Mayday message stating he is under attack by Cuban MiG aircraft. The transmission will be interrupted by destruction of the aircraft, which will be triggered by radio signal. This will allow ICAO radio stations in the Western Hemisphere to tell the U.S. what has happened to the aircraft instead of the U.S. trying to sell the incident.
2: I love how complex this one is. Get a civilian airliner that the CIA owns through one of its several airline front companies in Miami and turn it into a drone. Paint another plane to look just like it fill the duplicate with fake college students who are pretending to go on a Latin American holiday, but who are really CIA agents, have the plane with the passengers take off from a public civilian airport and follow a flight plan that would take it over Cuba. But once it's south of Florida, switch it with the CIA drone plane. Have the passengers return to a non-public air force base in Florida where the plane will be reconverted for military use. Meanwhile, have the drone plane start broadcasting mayday signals to listeners in the Caribbean with a recorded message of a pilot saying he's under attack by a Cuban MiG. Then, blow the plane up and wait for nations around the Caribbean to tell us how they heard one of our planes being shot down by a Cuban MiG. And there are other
0: aviation-related shenanigans we can commit. It is possible to create an incident which will make it appear that communist Cuban MiGs have destroyed a U.S. Air Force aircraft over international waters in an unprovoked attack. A. Approximately four or five F-101 aircraft will be dispatched in trail from Homestead Air Force Base, Florida, to the vicinity of Cuba. Their mission will be to reverse course and simulate imposter aircraft for an air defense exercise in southern Florida. These aircraft would conduct variations of these flights at frequent intervals. Crews would be briefed to remain at least 12 miles off the Cuban coast. However, they would be required to carry live ammunition in the event that hostile actions were taken by the Cuban MiGs. B. On one such flight, a pre-briefed pilot would fly tail-in Charlie at considerable interval between aircraft. While near the Cuban island, this pilot would broadcast that he had been jumped by MiGs and was going down. No other calls would be made. The pilot would then fly directly west at extremely low altitude and land at a secure base in Eglin Auxiliary. The aircraft would be met by the proper people, quickly stored and given a new tail number. The pilot who had performed the mission under an alias would resume his proper identity and return to his normal place of business. The pilot and aircraft. Would then have disappeared. C. At precisely the same time that the aircraft was presumably shot down, a submarine or small surface craft would disperse F 101 parts, parachute, etc., at approximately 15 to 20 miles off the Cuban coast and depart. The pilots returning to Homestead would have a true story as far as they knew. Search ships and aircraft could be dispatched and parts of aircraft found.
2: This is another clever one. Get a bunch of real Air Force pilots who don't know what is going on and have them conduct regular air defense exercises off Southern Florida. Put a pilot among them who does know the plan and is operating under a fake name. Have that guy lag behind and then radio them that he's been jumped by a MiG and is going down. He then drops to very low altitude and lands at a nearby airbase that's different than the one his fellow pilots are heading to. When he lands, he gets his real identity back, and they change the numbers on his plane, so it appears that both the pilot and the plane have vanished. Then, have a sub or surface ship scatter airplane parts off the coast of Cuba to simulate the crash, and everybody, even the man's fellow pilots
0: back at the original airbase, think that the whole thing was real. So this is some pretty amazing stuff. But what's the most controversial thing that Operation Northwoods proposed? That would be recommendation number four in the document. It reads, we could develop a communist Cuban terror campaign in the Miami area, in other Florida cities, and even in Washington. So let that sink in for a moment.
2: The Joint Chiefs of Staff are proposing that they stage a terrorist campaign on American soil. The terrorism would take place in the Miami area, in other cities in Florida, and even in the nation's capital. So the Joint Chiefs are suggesting false flag terrorist attacks on Washington, D.C. And here's how that campaign would work.
0: The terror campaign could be pointed at refugees seeking haven in the United States.
2: So attack Cuban refugees who have sought safe haven in our country and make it look like it's Castro's terror goons following them here and attacking them in their new
0: home in the US. We could sink a boatload of Cubans on route to Florida, real or simulated. And the words real or simulated are in the
2: text of the document. So the Joint Chiefs are proposing that we possibly sink a boatload of actual Cuban refugees on the way to Florida. That means being willing to kill them, either as a result of
0: the attack directly or with them drowning in the sea afterwards. We could foster attempts on lives of Cuban refugees in the United States even to the extent of wounding, in instances to be widely publicized. So even though we try not to kill Cuban refugees already in the U.S., we could make
2: it look like Cubans were trying to kill them, and we could even wound them badly enough to get widespread press coverage. Here's how that might work.
0: Exploding a few plastic bombs in carefully chosen spots, the arrest of Cuban agents and the release of prepared documents substantiating Cuban involvement also would be helpful in projecting the idea of an irresponsible government.
2: So we can put bombs containing plastic explosives, because that's what a plastic bomb is, in select locations and set them off to wound Cuban refugees. We can then arrest Cuban agents and release fake documents that implicate the Cuban government in the bombings. This would be helpful in projecting the idea of an irresponsible government in Cuba. Some might say that the proposals in the project project the idea of an irresponsible military leadership here in the U.S.
0: Wow. All right, before we get on to the rest of our story, I do want to take a moment here to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Michael D., Ramona F., Adrian K., Martin H., and Logan C., Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. So if you've been thinking of becoming a StarQuest patron, now's the time. Visit sqpn.com slash give today. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com. A-A-R-O-N-V.com. Making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. So, Jimmy, to continue, what theories are there about Operation Northwoods?
2: From the reason perspective, we need to cover what happened after the Joint Chiefs submitted their plan, and we need to cover how it came to public attention. And I also want to go back and talk about the fate of the USS Maine before the Spanish-American War. Then from the faith perspective, we'll do a moral analysis of Operation Northwoods.
0: All right. So what can we say about all this from the reason perspective? Let's go in chronological order and look at the sinking of the USS Maine back in 1898. Why did you want to revisit that?
2: Because we only told you about the two investigations that were done right after the explosion. I wanted to keep the story in chronological order and share with you what was out there in the public mind at the time. The Spanish investigation had come to the conclusion that it it was an accidental explosion on the main, and the US Navy came to the conclusion that it was a mine floating in Havana Harbor. Those were the results of the two investigations at the time of the war, but since then there have been several more investigations and they've come to a variety of conclusions. In 1911, After the war and after Cuba was an independent republic, there was a new investigation. Cuba wanted us to get the wreck out of their harbor, which had been sitting there for the last 13 years, and we were willing to do so. So we built a cofferdam, a kind of enclosure around the wreck, and then pumped the water out to expose it. We retrieved the bodies of the sailors who were still there. We brought in actual engineers, rather than just Navy divers, to take a look at the wreckage. And under the leadership of Rear Admiral Charles Vreeland, a second court of inquiry was held. And what did the new court conclude? It concluded that the explosion was caused by an external explosion, not an internal fire that then set off the magazines. Though they thought that the mine or whatever was located in a slightly different place than where the 1898 inquiry thought it had been. And this new finding held more weight because it wasn't done in the heat of passion right before a war with the press going crazy and it had actual engineers who actually got to see the ship instead of having to rely on what divers reported. After the inquiry, the victims were then buried in Arlington National Cemetery in Virginia, and the remains of the ship were refloated, taken out to sea, and then scuttled with appropriate ceremonies. Okay, and then when was the next investigation after that one? It was in 1974 when Admiral Hiram Rickover became curious about the case and decided to do his own personal, non-official investigation. He consulted experts, and eventually he wrote a book called How the Battleship Maine Was Destroyed, which came out in 1976. He came to the opposite conclusion, that it was an internal fire that set off the magazines. Specifically, a fire that started by spontaneous combustion not human combustion, (laughs) in the coal bunker next to the magazine. As another author has pointed out, the Navy had shifted the type of coal it was burning on these steam-powered ships. Originally, they used anthracite coal, which is smokeless and does not spontaneously combust. But with the arrival of heavy steel ships, they started burning bituminous coal, which burns hotter and gives you more power but it also generates fire damp, which is a mixture of flammable gases found in coal mines, including, for example, methane. And firedamp damp is explosive if it gets up to between 4 and 16% of the atmosphere in an enclosed space, like a coal bunker. Furthermore, coal is often contaminated with iron sulfide, also known as pyrite iron pyrite, or fool's gold, because it looks a lot like gold due to the shininess of iron and the yellowing effect of sulfur. You know, shiny yellow. Oh, that must be gold. The Greek name for this metal is purites lithos, which means stone that makes fire, because if it gets struck, such as with a metal tool, it will spark and make fire. Pyrite is Thus, or has been used in the firing mechanisms of guns, for example. So, whether by the fool's gold or by something else, the theory is that a fire started in the coal bunker and this spread to the ship's magazines.
0: Have any studies been done in more recent years?
2: There have been two, one in 1998 and one in 2002. In 1998, National Geographic commissioned a study by Advanced Marine Enterprises for the 100th anniversary of the disaster. The results of this study were inconclusive. On the one hand, they found that a coal fire could have set off the magazine. On the other hand, computer modeling of the damage to the ship and impressions on the seafloor were also consistent with a mine being the initial cause of detonation. On balance, they thought that the new findings increased the likelihood that it was a mine, but they didn't prove this. Then in 2002, the Discovery Channel did a study that supported the coal fire theory. And so we have conflicting studies and the cause of the USS Maine disaster
0: remains mysterious to this day. Is there anything else we should say about it before we jump back to 1962?
2: Yes, because there's another theory that's been proposed, though it hasn't been supported by any of the investigations we've covered. It's the theory that the destruction of the USS Maine was itself a false flag operation. In other words, we blew up the Maine in order to have a pretext to begin the Spanish-American War. This claim has been made in some Spanish language media, and it's the official view in Cuba today. If you go to the monument in Havana that commemorates the main, it describes the victims of the explosion as victims sacrificed to the imperialist greed and its fervor to seize control of Cuba. So how
0: likely do you think that is to be true?
2: Not particularly. I'm not aware of any positive evidence suggesting that this was a false flag operation. It's hard to imagine that President William McKinley would have approved detonating the ship. Note that he had to be woken up and told about the explosion. He wasn't awake and waiting for it to happen. Also, McKinley was personally opposed to starting the war and only went along with it when the political wind shifted and he didn't have a choice, what with Congress using its constitutional authority to declare war on Spain.
0: What if McKinley didn't do it, but someone lower down on the chain like a rogue segment in, this, in the Navy?
2: If so, the Secretary of the Navy didn't get the memo because when he woke McKinley up, he told him it was an accident, though that was just a guess at this point. If he'd been in on the plot, he would have presented it as an attack on one of our ships, but he just said it was an accident. Another person who wasn't in on it was Captain Sigsby because he was on the freaking ship at the time of the explosion. He apparently was in his quarters in the back of the ship when it happened, which is why he survived. He then sent off the panicked telegram to Washington. But why would he stay on a ship he knew was going to explode with its magazines going off? There would be no guarantee that he would survive the blast, or that he would be able to get out of the wreckage, or that he would be uninjured and in good enough shape to swim to shore before drowning. So who in the Navy would have set off the explosion, and how would they have done it, and done it without leaving traces for the investigators to find? The more you think about this proposal, the less likely it seems, and the more likely It seems that it's Cuban propaganda, especially, you know, like on the monument, it says this was so we could seize control of Cuba. Then why did we give it its
0: independence in 1902? Right. So let's go back to 1962. What happened when the Joint Chiefs turned in their proposal for Operation Northwoods? The plan had been submitted on March 13th, and three days later, on March 16th,
2: President Kennedy had a meeting with General Lemnitzer, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff.
0: According to a memo drafted by Brigadier General Edward Lansdale, General Lemnitzer commented that the military had contingency plans for U.S. intervention. Also, it had plans for creating plausible pretexts to use force, with the pretext being either attacks on U.S. aircraft or a Cuban action in Latin America for which we could retaliate. The president said bluntly that we were not discussing the use of military force that General Lemnitzer might find the U.S. so engaged in Berlin or elsewhere that he couldn't use the contemplated four divisions in Cuba. So Kennedy
2: gave a blunt no, and if you've studied the life of John F. Kennedy, you know he could be really, really blunt. He likely was on this occasion, and saying he gave a blunt no is probably an understatement. And this no wasn't just to Operation Northwoods. It was to any use of military force in Cuba because there were flashpoints elsewhere that we might need to deploy our forces, including Berlin. After all, West Berlin had just fallen under Soviet blockade the previous year during the Berlin crisis of 1961, which led to the building of the Berlin Wall. So the situation elsewhere in the world was far too delicate. What the memo does not say and that Generals Limnitzer and Lansdale may not have known, is the reaction Kennedy had privately to some of the proposals in Operation Northwoods, like sinking a boat full of actual Cuban refugees on their way to Florida, or staging terrorist campaigns on U.S. soil.
0: How did Operation Northwoods come to public attention? It happened in 1997,
2: so the project remained classified, top secret, for 35 years. The reason it came to light was that in the wake of Oliver Stone's 1991 movie JFK, Congress passed and President Clinton signed an act authorizing the JFK Assassination Records Review Board. Its job was to examine and declassify as much material as possible. As it did so, it discovered the Operation Northwoods documents and determined that their top-secret classification was no longer essential for national security. Thus, in 1997, they were released to the public, letting us all know about Operation Northwoods for the first time. Since many people hold that JFK's actions with respect to Cuba and the Soviets may have led to his assassination, it's ironic that a review of his assassination records led to the public revelation of Operation Northwoods. If so, these events come full circle. So what can we say about Operation Northwoods from the faith perspective? Well, it involves two key moral issues, lying and killing. So we need to look at both of them. Absolutely all of the Operation Northwoods proposals involve lying. So if your view of lying is that it's always wrong, then Operation Northwoods was immoral from the get-go. On the other hand, if you think that lying is sometimes permitted, such as in wartime, then the circumstances of the Cold War could potentially justify the deception that the project involved. This isn't the place to debate the subject of lying in depth, And at this historical distance and not being a professional historian, I wouldn't claim to be able to properly weigh and evaluate all of the factors that applied to that unique time. So we'll leave the issue of lying aside
0: and look at the issue of killing. So this plan involved killing on a large scale, starting a war. So what are we to make of that? The church holds that it's legitimate to fight wars
2: in some circumstances. That's why it has the famous Just War Doctrine that needed to be developed as soon as you had Christian governments that were responsible for the national security of their people back in the 4th and 5th centuries. In a fallen, violent world, you can't be a pacifist and simultaneously protect your citizens. You have to choose between those. So it can be legitimate to fight wars. The question is, would the proposed war against Cuba have been a just war?
0: One aspect of this war is that it would have been a preemptive one, a war intended to avoid an even worse situation. So what do you make of that?
2: Some people have argued that preemptive wars should never be fought, that you shouldn't attack unless you or your allies are attacked first. And I think that should be the normal course of things, that wars should be defensive rather than preemptive. Most people seem to agree, which is why they wanted to develop Operation Northwoods in the first place, because world opinion would strongly disapprove of us just up and invading Cuba. But I'm skeptical of the view that just wars can never be preemptive. It seems to me that there are situations where the stakes are so grave that you need to attack first in order to avoid a worse situation. By way of comparison, if we shrink this down to the personal scale, if someone is pointing a gun at you and has a clear intention to shoot, you don't have to wait for him to shoot you first before you can shoot him back.
0: All right. And then the question would be whether this particular situation was one that warranted preemption.
2: On that subject, I'm hesitant. On the one hand, I wasn't alive back then, and I can only look at things in hindsight. From that perspective, I see that we managed to avoid war with Cuba and the Soviet Union. And knowing that, a preemptive war was not objectively necessary to avoid a worse situation, at least not in our timeline. So that's an argument that this one wouldn't have been justified. On the other hand, based on the knowledge available at the time, a reasonable person could have concluded that one was justified and that we needed to keep Cuba from becoming a full Soviet satellite country. After all, later that same year, In October 1962, we almost did have a nuclear war as a result of the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's an argument in favor of taking care of the problem before it got to that point.
0: I can see you trying to be fair and impartial between different viewpoints as usual, but is there anything about Operation Northwoods you feel was definitely wrong? Yes, the way it envisioned
2: killing innocent people. This is absolutely immoral. As St. John Paul II said in his encyclical Evangelium Vitae, The
0: commandment, you shall not kill, has absolute value when it refers to the innocent person, and all the more so in the case of weak and defenseless human beings who find their ultimate defense against the arrogance and caprice of others only in the absolute binding force of God's commandment. Faced with a progressive weakening in individual consciences, And in society, of the sense of the absolute and grave moral illicitness of the direct taking of all innocent human life, the Church's magisterium has spoken out with increasing frequency in defense of the sacredness and inviolability of human life. Therefore, by the authority which Christ conferred upon Peter and his successors, and in communion with the bishops of the Catholic Church, I confirm that the direct and voluntary killing of an innocent human being is always gravely immoral. This doctrine, based upon that unwritten law which man, in the light of reason, finds in his own heart, is reaffirmed by sacred scripture, transmitted by the tradition of the church, and taught by the ordinary and universal magisterium. The deliberate decision to deprive an innocent human being of his life is always morally evil and can never be licit, either as an end in itself or as a means to a good end. It is, in fact, a grave act of disobedience to the moral law, and indeed to God himself, the author and guarantor of that law. Therefore, even if the proposed
2: war to get rid of Fidel Castro had been just, you couldn't kill innocent people in order to bring it about, period. Whatever you may think of all of the other ideas proposed in Operation Northwoods, this one is horrific. You cannot deliberately kill innocent people, ever. Is
0: there a possible out here for the Joint Chiefs? When the head of the Cuba project asked them to come up with options for false flag operations to start the war, did they have an obligation to think of what they could, even if they didn't want to? I don't have enough information to assess what
2: their legal requirement was at the time. I will note that military officers are only required to obey legal orders, and so you need to determine the legality of the request and whether it constituted an order. And That's problematic because the Joint Chiefs all outrank the head of the Cuba Project, so they're above him in the chain of command. But even if they were legally bound to come up with some possible pretexts, they weren't obliged to suggest ones that involved the violation of U.S. law, like conducting a terror campaign on U.S. soil and blowing up plastic explosives to injure civilians and they didn't have to frame their plan in a way that consciously envisioned sinking ships full of living human beings. So I don't think there's a full moral out here for the Joint Chiefs, no. So Jimmy, what's your bottom line on Operation Northwoods? I'm profoundly uncomfortable with Operation Northwoods. It's not clear to me that the proposed war against Cuba would have been just. It's not clear that deception to get into the war would have been warranted Numerous ideas raised in the plan give rise to the gravest moral concerns. These include especially the proposed way of treating Cuban refugees who had either found a new home in America or who were trying to get here, creating a terrorist campaign against them, in their new home is horrible. Blowing up plastic explosives to injure them to get press attention is horrific. And deliberately sinking ships of refugees is horrific. I can only conclude that, in this case, the Joint Chiefs, the Cold Warriors involved, were too cold. Their consciences should have told them that what they were proposing was horrifically wrong. Thank God that President Kennedy didn't approve their plan.
0: So, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listener on this topic?
2: We'll have a link to Jesse Ventura's book, 63 Documents the Government Doesn't Want You to Read, which includes the declassified Operation Northwoods documents, as well as 62 others that the government doesn't want you to read. So you don't want to miss (laughs) those. We'll also have a link to the Northwoods document itself, an article on Operation Northwoods, articles on General Lyman-Lemnitzer, false flag operations, Cuba... We'll have video of the Eisenhower farewell address, the whole thing, as well as Kennedy's inauguration. We'll have articles on the USS Maine, links to Captain Sigsby's telegram, info on the Spanish-American War, Guantanamo Bay, the Cuban Revolution, Operation Diamond, that was the Mossad Israeli operation that got us the MiG fighter, and also John Paul II's encyclical Evangelium Vitae.
0: Very good. Great discussion. So, Jimmy, what do we have for
2: mysterious headlines this week? Well, one of the things we've talked about in previous episodes is the unreliability of hypnosis, at least as a way of retrieving suppressed or forgotten memories. There's a real problem with it actually generating false memories, and that can get into court testimony and result in real serious miscarriages of justice. Well, scientists have been doing further work on creating false memories and removing them. So they they did some experiments where with the cooperation of people's parents who knew what actually happened in their childhood, they set up scenarios to convince the people that Events occurred in their childhood that didn't really occur. Like, you remember when this happened when you were in that mall and you were all lost and you know, so forth, that kind of thing? And they would just suggesting it like that would generate a fake memory that their parents knew never happened. But then they said, Can we reverse this process? Can we help people realize this is a false memory? So they would say, What's the source of your information on that? You know, you know, people can su- come up with memories if they're falsely suggested to them. What happened in your case? And people would start to realize, oh, I guess that wasn't a real memory after all. So good news there. Also, we've had news, there's been a a lot of news lately about the unidentified aerial phenomena, otherwise known as UFOs, that the Navy has been investigating. We've had some information released about accounts going back, you know, almost 20 years. Well, the encounters have continued. And we just recently got information about a mysterious encounter between the Navy, uh, multiple Navy destroyers. And I guess the Navy's also in our episode uh, <laughs> today, as well as deceptive things like false memories. But multiple destroyers were swarmed by mysterious aircraft off California over numerous nights in 2019. Mm. And these were apparently unmanned craft. The question
0: is were they terrestrial or not? I was interested in that one. I had read about it because they said that, you know, they. Thought are they just drones that people are flying near navy ships? And they they said, well, they're hundreds of mile or hundred miles offshore. Most commercially available drones can't reach that far, so uh, yeah. they're taking it seriously. It's very interesting. Excellent. I love these tic tac UFO type stories. (laughs) They're fun. All right. Uh, Thank you for those headlines. So that's it from us. What do you think about Operation Northwoods? What are your theories? What's your reaction to the revelation? If you'd never heard of it before, we want to hear from you. You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page, or by sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or sending a tweet to at mys underscore world. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next Friday is a fifth Friday, so we're going to be
2: covering weird questions like popes in space, sacraments on the International Space Station, why St. Christopher is sometimes depicted with a dog's head, time travel and future popes, baptizing baby Yoda, baptizing the Wicked Witch of the West, and giants in the Bible.
0: Nice. Pope's in space i don't know they get that old muppet show thing going anyway <laughs> be sure to share the podcast with your friends and write a review if you can in apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from because that helps us grow our community we really do appreciate it you can find links to jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast and to make new shows, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Akin, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. Once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on Starquest.